Hello, and welcome back to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series, supported by the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports and sponsored by Vicon. I'm Stuart McCurlane Naylor from the University of Suffolk, and today I'm really lucky to be joined by Wendy Holiday. And Wendy is oh, quite a broad range of skill sets, really. We were just talking about it, but Wendy is a physiotherapist with a PhD on cycling biomechanics from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And she also works as a clinical bike fitter at Science to Sport. So hopefully with today's topic of cycling biomechanics, Wendy is someone who's really well positioned to give a broad overview of some of the real topics um, yeah, relating to the biomechanics of cycling. So without kind of me talking for too long, I'll hand over to Wendy and we can get into the interesting stuff. So thank you, Wendy. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Stuart. Um, thank you so much for organising these talks. Um, they really have covered a large range of topics which have been incredibly interesting. So I'm sure everyone has enjoyed that. Um, today we're going to be talking about really the basics of cycling biomechanics, what muscles work when, what the normative <clears throat> joint angles are, and some tips for future cycling studies. So let's get into it. First of all, <clears throat> when you're going to be doing cycling research, you really need to look at the bicycle and the cyclist. It's two components that work together, the machine and the driver, and you can't look at one without looking at the other. So today we're going to be looking at the cyclist, basically their muscles and the joints, the kinematics, as well as just an overview of the bicycle and what you need to consider when you're doing some research, as well as I will be sharing some tips that I've had along the way with my research. So to start off with, um, you get different categories of cycling and every discipline will have different demands. If we look at your time trial, a huge factor is the aerodynamics, and that itself is a talk on its own. So we're not going to be discussing that today. Um, most common would be the road cycling, and this can either be for commuting or for sport and for racing. And then there's mountain biking, which has its own characteristics, such as cross country, which is quite technical, and marathon racing. For the purpose of today's talk, we will be discussing road cycling as a competitive sport. And the reason that I mentioned that the bicycle and the rider need to be considered with research is that the rider has five contact points with the bike. So we've got the saddle, the two um, hands on the handlebars, and the feet on the pedals. And changing any of these will have an effect on the cyclist with regards to their performance and their comfort on the bike. When you, need, when you start off with cycling and cycling research and cyclists, you need to be familiar with the components of a bicycle. And there's certain terminologies that you should understand, such as your seat tube, your down tube, your top tube, handlebars, all the different components that make up a bicycle, and just being familiar with the jargon that comes with cycling. So I'm just going to cover some of those. Um, the most important components of configuration uh, would be the ones that I'm going to discuss now. 
And there are many different methods in which you can measure these. So the important is to choose one method and stick to it, okay? Don't change things. Find something that you're comfortable with, that you have the equipment to measure the bicycle, and then always measure it the same. So if we look, the most common one would be your saddle height, and that's measured from what we call the bottom bracket, so in the middle of the crank, up to the top of the seat of the saddle, okay? It falls along the seat tube angle. This is your seat tube. And one must consider that that seat tube angle on different bikes will be different. Most of the geometries of the bike is 72 to 74 degrees, but it's important if you're going to be using a range of bicycles to measure that angle and ensure that you get the same distance, the same angle when you're taking your measurements. The other one is your um, saddle setback, and that is measured from your bottom bracket perpendicular up and the distance behind, sometimes in front, but usually behind the bottom bracket. Um, just consider that you've got a variety of different saddles and they also come in different saddle lengths. So you need to take that into consideration. We also talk about your handlebar reach, so how far your handlebars are away from your saddle, and your handlebar drop. So how low are your handlebars compared to your saddle? And different cycling um, disciplines <clears throat> will be in different positions. So a commuter bike usually will have handlebars that are above the saddle, whereas when you're racing, you're likely to have your handlebars below your saddle in terms of aerodynamics. So these are just the main measurements that need to be um, taken when you're working with bicycles. And we'll get into those a little bit in more detail a little bit later, <clears throat> but just getting you familiar with some of the terms. <clears throat> we also need to look at your hand position. So if we discuss road cycling, there are three main hand positions. We've got your hoods, which is where your hands are in a bit of a groove there near your brakes. We also have your hands in what we call the drops, so they're lowered down, and then on the top bar. So it's important to know these different positions as they can change the shoulder and the wrist angle as well as your thoracic spine. Obviously, dropping from your hoods to your drops is going to put you in a lower position through your thoracic spine. It's important to keep consistent as these changes in the body angles can have an effect on your metabolic, metabolic costs, your power, as well as your comfort. And then we talk about your pedal revolution. So this is when you're pedaling, your foot action going around on the pedal. You've got your top dead center or zero or 360 degrees, your first quadrant to 90 degrees, and then bottom dead center, which is at 180 degrees, 270, and then back up to the top. It's also known as the push and the pull phase. Um, it's not as clear cut as push and then pull, but in simplistic terms, we talk about the push phase and the pull phase. So especially when you clip in onto the pedals, as one leg pushes down, your other leg, which is fixed onto the pedal, can then pull up and help you um, to get a stronger force through those pedals to turn them over quickly. So we talk about your top dead center and your bottom dead center. All right, 
which muscles work when? Um, this is obviously influenced by intensity and fatigue. And for today, we will be discussing normal steady state patterns of muscle recruitment. And as my PhD study was determining what happens at different in riding intensities, I will also be showing you some slides on how riding intensity affects the muscles. This is just an overview of the muscle system. So here you can see your pedal revolution. So your top dead center and your bottom dead center over there. And you can see the glute max when that works, your hamstrings are working, when your quads are working, your calf muscles, and then your tib ant, which is your bright pink muscle, to pull your foot up and over the top dead center. Really just a quick overview of which muscles are working when through the pedal revolution. Here's a, it's quite a simple um, video of, of when the muscles work. And not 100% accurate, but, but we'll give you an idea of, of when they work. So your glutes, your quads, calf muscles on the push phase, tip and working, hamstrings, your hip flexors on that pull phase to pull the leg back up. Just gives you a good overview of when those muscles are working. And if we get into a little bit more detail, these, this is your glute max. It's a powerful hip extender, and it is active during the push phase from the top dead center to approximately 130 degrees of the pedal revolution. If we look at the research, you can see that it works from your top dead center to 90 and then down to the bottom dead center. And as the intensity of your ride increases, we can see that this is the quadrant, quadrant one, where it works the hardest. And that was where we had significant changes from 60 to 80, from 60 to 90%, as well as from 80 to 90% intensity. And the other, mass, the other quadrants were also significant, mainly from 60% to 90% intensity. But you can see where this muscle works the hardest in this quadrant, and that's where we had the most significant changes um, in muscle activity. Your bicep fem, it's a biarticular muscle, so it crosses the hip and the knee, and it works to extend the hip and to flex the knee. We can see here, it works from top dead center down to bottom dead center, and that's where we saw the most significant changes with the change in riding intensity. So from 60 to 80 to 90%. And it controls the knee flexion. So from top dead center, it works for hip extension. And then in the second quadrant, it starts to control that knee flexion. If we look at your, your quads, your VMO and your VLO, they work to extend the knee. They're um, activated just before top dead center, and they terminate at just beyond 90 degrees. So this is the quadrant that they work in, in the most. So that's top dead center to 90 degrees, and you can see the blue corresponds with the blue, and that's where you saw significant changes as the intensity increased. So they work from the top dead center, and they push down to straighten that leg. Your rec fem is also a biarticular muscle, so it flexes the hip and extends the knee. 
this muscle is active from 270 to 90 degrees. And we can see as the intensity increased that it, the hip flexor was pulling the leg up and over the top dead center. And then it was working to start straightening that knee as you started pushing down. And we can see the significant changes with the riding intensity on that. Tib and this muscle works to dorsiflex the ankle and it's active from 270 degrees to lift that foot up and over the top dead center and then it terminates shortly afterwards. You can see here, this is where it's mainly active and that's where we saw significant changes from 60 to 80% as your riding intensity increases. So as the riding intensity increases, that tip and works harder to pull the foot up and over that top dead center. Gastrocnemius, also a biarticular muscle. So it works to plantar flex the foot <clears throat> and to flex the knee. It starts at approximately um, just after the termination of tib ant at about 30 degrees and works until 270 degrees in plantar flexing the ankle and therefore forcing the foot down on the pedal. So as the as the ankle plantar flexes, it um, forces the foot down onto the pedal until the beginning of the knee flexion. And that just helps with the force going through the pedal um, as you're riding. So we can see here that this is where it's working hard to push down on that pedal. And we didn't see any significant changes through the different um, increasing riding intensity. And this may be due to the fact that the medial gastroc works even at low intensities. And it works to stabilize that ankle in order to transfer force through the pedal. We didn't observe soleus in my studies, but it has been demonstrated in other studies that soleus also works hard to stabilize the ankle and the foot to generate force through the pedal. So there might have been significant changes in soleus um, with the riding intensity, but we didn't find that um, in the in the main quadrant that it works for um, increasing riding intensity. So just to give you a recap, glute max works as a hip extensor from 340 to 130 degrees, and its peak activity is at about 80 degrees. VLO and VMO work to extend the knee from 300 to 130 degrees of the pedal revolution with their peak activity at 30 degrees. RecFem works as a knee extensor and a hip flexor, and it works from 200 degrees all the way around to 110 degrees of the pedal revolution with its peak activity at about 20 degrees. Soleus and gastroc, ankle stabilizers as well as a knee flexor, and that works from 340 to 270 degrees with their peak activity at between 90 and 110 degrees. Tib Ant, ankle stabilizer, ankle flexion, works throughout the pedal revolution with its peak activity at 280 degrees to bring that foot up and over the top dead center. Hamstrings, they work as a knee flexion um, from 10 to 230 degrees of the pedal revolution with their peak activity at about 100 degrees. And if we look specifically at bicep fem, it works as a knee flexor as well as a hip extensor 
from 350 all the way through to 230 degrees with its peak activity at about 110 degrees. So this table is found in the So It L paper from 2005. And I have given Stuart a list of references. So you will be able to pick that up afterwards. It's really nice, just a good summary of muscle action during the pedal revolution. Always good to recap on which muscles work when during, the, during cycling. So those are the general patterns for muscle activity um, during cycling. But as always, humans are individual and we see different ankle patterns during cycling. So most commonly is dorsiflexion of the ankle before bottom dead center. And then just before bottom dead center, they push into plantar flexion to give them that extra force as the pedal hits what is commonly known as the dead spot. All right, just to keep it simple. That is where the area of the transition occurs from the pushing to the pulling phase. So as you're pushing down, obviously with biomechanics and levers, they get to a point where there isn't maximum force on the crank and the pedal, and that's what we term the, the dead spot. Um, some riders will ride with a dorsiflexed ankle throughout the majority of the pedal revolution, and they tend to activate soleus and tib and earlier on in the downstroke. So that helps to keep the foot into that dorsiflexion. And then they push through with dorsiflexion throughout the pedal revolution. You also get the pointy-toed riders. So they ride with plantar flexion throughout the pedal revolution. And one needs to evaluate if this is their riding style or if their saddle is too high and they're merely reaching for the pedals at the bottom dead center. So we get all these different... Um, ankle movements during the pedal revolution and just something to observe with your with your cyclists. <clears throat> so there are quite a few studies on muscle synergies during cycling and the impact of intensity of riding position such as sitting or standing as well as different fatigue um, on the muscle synergies. So just to summarize it in five short points you'll see that single joint muscles are concerned with the generation of positive work, where two joint muscles are responsible for the fine regulation of the work. RecFem assists with hip flexion during the pull phase. It also works with knee extension in the push phase. Gastroc is a knee flexor in the pull phase and an ankle stabilizer during the push phase. So the co-activation of muscle pairs may serve to protect the joints. And if one is too strong, it may put strain onto a joint. And this is important to balance muscle development when you're designing muscle training and rehab for the cyclists, because you don't want one muscle to be dominant, and then you put pressure onto the or strain through the joints um, as they're riding. So just something to, to bear in mind. Um, it is a fascinating um, if you want to deep dive into all the research, there are a lot of articles on, on what happens during muscles um, when you're standing, when you're sitting, when you're fatigued, when you're sprinting. So we're not going to get into all of those details now, but just to remember that um, the synergies do change with cycling. All right, if we look at joint kinematics. So for my study, we used Vicon. This is an early video of the Vicon, and you can see our cyclist having a, a drink of water. And this is one of our study participants with all the Vicon markers, with the EMG, 
we also had um, the metabolic cart. So we were taking a whole lot of measurements. You can see they were all wired up. It took us about 45 minutes to set up each participant. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with that process. All right, so there's some general guidelines of where the joint angle should be when they're on the bike. Um, the ankle and the knee are measured at bottom dead center and the hip is commonly measured at top dead center. That's just a recommendation. That's what previous research has done. So just to keep that in mind and to take note so that you can discuss your findings with other studies. You don't want to go and measure at three o'clock and then you don't have anything to um, compare your results with. So usually the ankle and the knee are measured at bottom dead center and the hip is commonly measured at top dead center or reported. So it's measured throughout, but reported at those um, points of the pedal revolution. If we look at the ankle, approximately five to 15 degrees of plantar flexion at the bottom dead center. But just to remember to take into account the different pedaling styles that I spoke about earlier. And your ankle plantar flexion, dorsiflexion is obviously affected by your saddle height as well as your cleat position. Just some things to bear in mind. Your hip, the hip and the shoulder are controversial joints. Um, anyone who has heard me present on this before will know it's the one thing that I keep going on about. So the hip previously has been measured from the knee to the greater trochanter, and then as an angle parallel to the floor. Now, physiotherapy was my first um, study option, and if you're a clinician, you'll know that that is not a clinical hip angle. So it's a really nice angle to measure parallel to the floor, you're done, but that doesn't measure a true hip angle. And the same with other methods where they've measured from the knee to the hip and then across to the shoulder joint, that completely eliminates the spine and the, you know, the thoracic curve, the lower back curve, and they measure the shoulder angle through there. So what we did is we actually measured a true clinical hip angle and a true shoulder angle. And you can see the difference if you just take a straight line, how that angle is different to a clinical angle for the hip and the shoulder. So we've been very fortunate in recently, there've been some papers on how to calculate hip center. So we don't need to drill the Vicon marker into the bone anymore. Um, this study, not surprisingly, only had one participant where they actually drilled the marker into the hip bone to get the hip center. So thankfully, we don't need to do that anymore. Um, some clever people have come up with calculations to work out the hip joint center. So going back to this, at this stage, there are no recommendations for the shoulder angle um, on the bicycle. That is changing. There are some studies coming out. The elbow angle, roughly 20 to 30 degrees, and that would be with your hands on the hoods, okay? So remember we spoke about the hoods and the drops and the top bar, that is measured with the hands on the hoods. And then your torso angle is roughly between 30 to 60 degrees, and you can see that that changes if it's a recreational rider, a fast road cyclist, or just a casual cyclist, that obviously has an impact on aerodynamics. And, you know, what is their aim for the cycling? Is, is it just to 
is it a recreational cyclist or do they really want to get into an aerodynamic um, position? What you can also notice is that all of these um, recommendations are based on personal experience. And as I said, more and more research is coming out to give us more scientific um, recommendations for these angles. Okay, But what it comes down to is more the rider's comfort and their performance on the bike as to where within that range they should be positioned. This um, chart is also in one of my papers um, that has been published, so you'll be able to get that. If we look at how the body position changes over intensities, um, I haven't gone through each graph one by one, as I think sometimes we get a little bit bogged down with all the graphs, but you can see that there were significant changes in the majority of the joints from 60 to 80 to 90%. And if I just give you a little video, you'll be able to see. So this is one of our colleagues and he was riding at 60% really fast and then at 80% and then down to 90%. And you can see what happens to his joints as he rides at different intensities which is why it's so important to take the training intensity into account when you're configuring a bicycle um, as the extended knee position and the forward thoracic lean may place the rider in a suboptimal position when riding at higher or lower intensities. Something also to consider with your research is that if you're going to get them to ride at a higher intensity, those angles that we spoke about earlier might not apply because it changes with the intensity okay so bear that in mind if you're doing any research and then the bicycle which is obviously a very important part and the aspect of bicycle configuration open to the most discussion has been the saddle height and consequently has been the focus of most studies to date regarding body position on the bicycle we can see here there have been many studies on optimal saddle height. These are just the popular or the trusted methods of setting saddle height. I'm not going to go into all of these. Um, this is from one of the papers that Dr. Swart and I published, and it is included in the reference list, so you'll be able to go through that. But what you need to ask is, what is optimal? So these are all based on you know, optimal saddle height. But what is optimal? Is it optimal cycling performance? Is it optimal efficiency? Is it to optimize muscle activity? Is it to reduce the knee joint forces? Or is it to prevent injuries from occurring? And so you really need to work out what is your aim with that saddle height? What do you want to do with that saddle height? Do you want to prevent an injury? Or do you want them to get into the fastest position that they can get into? Um, the consensus at this stage is that Static knee flexion angle should be between 25 and 35 degrees at bottom dead center, with dynamic measures ranging between 30 and 45 degrees of knee flexion, depending on the riding intensity. So what's nice is that technology is really advanced. Um, this study had four VHS video cameras. Okay, can you just imagine VHS video cameras, which they placed around the cyclist, and they called that 3D. So nowadays, we're really lucky to have Vicon, where we can get an accurate assessment of 3D motion. We also have saddle pressure mapping, 
and force vector pedals to really measure all the components of cycling. We need to remember that cycling isn't a sagittal straight line sport. As much as you think the knees just go up and down, movement does occur in other planes, particularly at the knee and at the pelvis. And with um, systems such as Vicon, we can now measure that quite accurately. So in this video, you can see how that knee is moving in towards the frame and then back out. So you can see that it's not just a straight line movement, rotation does start occurring. So now that we have the ability to test in real time, previous studies and normative values that were all based on static measures. Um, ongoing research in this, in this field um, and was kind of more towards dynamic and, and different um, intensities. And that was the main part of my thesis. So we know that there's a difference between the static and the dynamic measurement systems, such as measuring with a goniometer or one sagittal camera taking a still shot compared to 3D motion capture that records during the cycling action. Um, we also know that it depends on the intensity of the ride. So more research is needed to evaluate the optimal angles for the different intensities, as well as at that dynamic um, capture. And then once again, we need to work out optimal for what? For performance, for injury prevention, for aerodynamics. We really need to ask, everyone talks about optimal, but optimal for what? You need to really um, define what optimal is for you. So when studying an aspect of cycling, it's important to take both the cyclist and the bicycle into consideration because changing one part of the bicycle will have an influence on other parts of the, of the bike. So just some tips for, for cycling studies. As I said, if you change one aspect of the bike, it will have an effect on other parts um, as well as on the rider's position. Sorry, this slide always um, comes first and then does that. So let me jump to there. Um, if you're changing any aspect of the configuration, you need to give the rider or the participant adequate time to adapt to the new configuration. And this will depend on how many hours of riding that they are doing. So some studies um, that I've reviewed, uh, they did not give adequate um, ad adaptation time and saw the participants sliding forwards on the saddle to gain a more comfortable or a more powerful position. And this negatively affected the results because the rider wasn't where they wanted them to be for, for the study. Um, a few of the studies have allowed the participants to wear cycling shoes and running shoes. So some participants had running shoes, some participants had cycling shoes, as well as some had cycling shorts and some had running shorts. And you need to take these into account when you're doing research. Cycling shoes are much stiffer than running shoes and they would probably have cleats on, so the foot is fixed on the pedal, which means that when, you, when you're doing, particularly if you're doing testing now and then at a later stage, they come in in a week's time, if they don't have those cleats, their foot might move on the pedal. They might not be putting their foot exactly in the same place, and this can influence your results. Whereas if you've got a cleat, when they're clipped in, they're going to be in the same position um, on the pedal. And the same with your cycling shorts. So cycling shorts have got padding. And yes, it's only a few millimeters, but this is important to consider when you're doing a scientific project. 
So you can't have some cyclists or participants just in normal running shorts and some with padding because those few millimeters can make a difference if you're looking at kinematics. You also need to take into account <clears throat> their riding styles, such as that pedaling style that I discussed earlier. So you need a relatively high sample number to normalize your data as, as everyone has, will have a different style of riding. And then you need to record all the components. So a change in the saddle angle of only one to three degrees can dramatically change the rider's position. And participants will also be used to their width of the saddle. And saddles come with cutouts, they come with relief channels, they come in different lengths. So you really need to just record all of these components um, if, you're, if they're using their own bike. Um, handlebars also come in different widths and different shapes, and which can have an Im impact on the torso, the shoulder, the elbow, and the wrist angle. So if you think of a petite lady riding a bike with wide handlebars compared to a lady who of the same height but has a wider or a broader shoulder span, she's going to be more comfortable on those bars compared to the petite lady who will be out there. So all of these need to be considered before you start out on the study. And, and we all make these mistakes. I'm hoping to share some with you. Um, just consider all the aspects that are movable on, on the bike, such as your saddle and your handlebar, your handlebar angle, handlebar tilt. And then lastly, to design your protocol based on individual heart rate or power output. So one person riding at 200 watts might find that an easy ride for them, but a somebody else might find that quite a maximal effort. So what we recommend is that you start with a peak power output test to determine their max and then set according to a percentage of that so that everything is averaged out. All right, thank you. Short and sweet, just covering the basics of um, cycling biomechanics. Stuart. Brilliant. Thanks, Wendy. Yeah, that's really good. You say short and sweet. It was definitely sweet. Um, <laughs> yeah, really like that. I think there are a lot of kind of not individual moments, but really useful points. I think my personal favorite, I said before, I really like your graphics where you've got the muscle activity of different muscles all the way around the revolution and you can really kind of intuitively see that and personally I really like those graphics but then at the end I really liked the kind of implications for the design of future studies and that's something that's you know, really good to show especially with kind of students watching it or anyone really mm -hmm. thinking of conducting their own study um yeah so thank you um yeah. have you got the next slide just yes. while I, there we go yeah, brilliant so yeah thank you just while um while i give people chance because i know there's a bit of a delay on the youtube feed if you've got any questions then type those in the live chat on youtube um but yeah just while we wait for it to catch up um that's just a bit of a highlight of what's coming up in the next four weeks starting with a really hopefully really exciting talk next week on engaging youth such as school children in biomechanics and using biomechanics as a STEM outreach outreach vehicle. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, yeah, so I think as Wendy mentioned, all of the references are below the video in the description. So if you want to find out more, then 
um, yeah, feel free to go and click on those because I've put the links there to each of the papers. And I guess before we get into questions, if anyone wants to contact you, Wendy, with any, is there a best way of kind of finding out what you're up to or getting in touch? With yeah, sure. So I'm just going to jump back to that slide. Um, reachable on Twitter. Um, and then that's my email address. If anyone wants to email me, more than more than welcome to throw some questions at me. Um, yeah, go for it. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, yes, I think in terms of the questions, there's some on YouTube, but I'm going to be selfish and kick it off with one of my own. Um, <laughs> I think one of the reasons I really liked that talk is that it ties in with a topic I try and teach, but don't do anywhere near as well. So as part of our ergonomics in sport module, mm -hmm. I try and talk about the interaction between the cyclist and the bike in one of our lectures. Um, but just to touch on one of the things that you kind of hinted at, could maybe go into a bit more detail. Mm -hmm. What kind of role would the actual course play? So say if it is a road cyclist, when you talk mm -hmm. about the activity of different muscles how would it make a difference pedaling uphill compared to downhill or say yeah. out on your own compared to within a bunch of other riders? So, so you, you'd need me here for about five more hours to go into, into detail <laughs> on that. Um, what's quite nice is that there, there have been some studies um, on that and your muscles definitely change from a sitting to a standing position. Your joint forces also change, so you need to take that into account. Um, so when you're riding uphill, you tend to, if, if you're going to be powering up, let's say you're going to be standing, you're going to be standing up and driving forwards. So, so the muscles will be working differently um, versus when, you, when you're just sitting and kind of grinding up a hill. Um, it depends on each of the rider and how um, quickly they fatigue because we know that that pattern changes when mu one muscle fatigues, another one starts working. So I can't give you specifics. As I said, we'd really have to go into detail. But in, in short, there is a change from, from riding uphill to riding. Uh, most of them are going to be freewheeling downhill. But the other thing that comes into it is your road surface. So, so that will also make a difference. Um, I just think with, with cycling, there's so many elements that we need to, to look at. So it's not just the, the rider, but it's also the bicycle and, and the, the surface where they're riding, whether they're riding gravel or, or tar. Um, so so we, can, we can delve into some more details on, on uphill riding, but there are some studies out there that show that there is a big difference with the muscles, um, muscle recruitment patterns for that. Okay, brilliant. Thanks. I think, yeah, really interesting. I think that further highlights why it's such an interesting topic where you've got all of these different factors kind of interplaying, whether it's the human, the bike, the environment, other races, tactical aspects, and it all yeah. has a role on which muscles are being used. And I guess... And you throw yeah. in aerodynamics and kind of your team time trial um, and the aerodynamic effect of that, of where you positioned um, in your team and how much aerodynamic advantage you get or win factor um, you get. So 
so that that's also, as I say, um, a whole talk on its own, but also very interesting, very fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I think I'll um, I'll stop hogging you and I'll I go <laughs> to some questions that someone else has asked. Um, yeah, Ron Judge has said, I think this was early, early on, so you kind of touched on biarticular muscles after the question had been asked. Mm -hmm. I think it's still a very relevant question. He said, biceps femoris is a biarticular muscle. When strength training these muscles, do they require a specific stimulus compared to monoarticular? <clears throat> I think what you need to look at is, the, and, and this was the aim of the talk, was which muscles work where during the pedal revolution and then come off the bike and strengthen them in the ranges where they work. So if it's going to be um, to flex the hip and to extend the knee, then you want to work both aspects, but you also want to work on the other side so that you're not really tight into hip flexion and weak into um, hip extension. You really want to try and balance those. So you need to understand which muscles work when and then strengthen within those ranges off the bike. Um, I hope that answers the, the question. Yeah, I think it does, definitely. And I think, I think yeah, it's a, the question's probably on the wrong, the right kind of lines where mm. what you're just talking about becomes even more complicated when you throw in biarticular muscles because you're not just saying put the knee or the or put the hip in the position that it that, that muscle works in but you're saying you've actually got to position two different joints um yeah yeah, yeah. okay as um, a physio i i highly emphasize that off the bike work um i always say to my clients you know if you are cycling in a bad pattern you're just strengthening that bad pattern so you need to do some off the bike work um, to strengthen those muscles where they should be strong and stretch the muscles where they need to be stretched. Okay, and yeah, talking about different patterns, um, I guess it kind of links into biarticular as well around the ankle this time. Um, something I found really interesting is when you talked about the three different almost patterns of cycling mm -hmm. kinematics at the ankle, and I could mm -hmm. immediately sort of imagine myself as a terrible cyclist doing one or two of the different patterns. I wondered, is there any indication of which pattern is best? Or maybe if it's participant specific, how can you work out what's best for different people? I think your, your best, you know, it's so hard to change somebody's um, pedaling pattern as such or their pedaling style, but it, it has been done. Um, your best is, is really to work with, um, a power meter or, or you know your, your pedal power meter because then you can measure how much force is going through the pedals and is it better to for that person to ride with pointed toes or is it better for them to ride with dorsiflexion and then push into um, plantar flexion as that pedal comes down to the bottom do they get a more powerful advantage with different styles and then start teaching them to ride in those patterns. Um, so there, I, I personally think that you lose a fair amount of power if you plant a flex the whole way through, but I have been proved wrong. So um, my, my kind of go-to would be 
a normal movement with then um, what we call kind of swiping the mud off your foot at the bottom. So going into that little bit of plant deflection at the bottom and then coming through. I find riders who use dorsiflexion throughout the pedal revolution end up with really tight calves and tib ant. Their tib ant gets quite sore because they're pulling up into dorsiflexion almost throughout the pedal revolution. And, and they end up with quite tight calves and, and often pain. So it's good to get that free ankle movement and then really just pushing down um, as the pedal comes down to that bottom dead center. But I have been proved wrong. So as you say, all humans are individual. <laughs> Definitely. And um, yeah, I really like the cue of swiping the mud off the bottom of your shoe as well. Um, so there's yeah, another question that's come in from Reese McDonald. He says, Wendy, what role does the rider's flexibility play when bike fitting? So is it important to assess their flexibility prior to a fitment? Yeah, so so that paper, that was one of, um, I looked at intrinsic factors related to bike fitting or bicycle configuration, one of my chapters of my PhD and will hopefully be published soon. Um, it's with the, with the reviewers at the moment. And flexibility has a huge role. So you'll usually find me standing and demonstrating. Um, but because I'm on a camera and I'm not in front of an audience, it's, it's a little bit difficult. But your flexibility, not only your hamstring flexibility, but also your spinal flexibility makes um, importance in how far you can get your handlebars away from you and down to get an aerodynamic position, particularly in time trial um, positions. And your hamstring, so if you've got that hamstring flexibility, you can push your saddle higher up. And we know that a higher saddle gives you more power. Obviously, it, it gets to a point where you start losing power. But a higher saddle will give you more power. So if you've got that hamstring um, extensibility to reach the bottom of your pedal, but not start tilting your pelvis because your hamstrings are pulling you back, being able to... I wonder if I, if I do stand, if you'll be able to see me because I always demonstrate this. You need to be able to lean forward and have that flexibility. So almost like you're doing a um, reaching for your toes. Um, that position, that's how you cycle. That's the position that you would aim for with your hands on the handlebars and lower down. So flexibility is very important. And I would definitely measure it before doing or as part of your, if you're going to be doing a bike fit definitely measure it um, as part of your bike fit. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that. I think probably the last question, unless any more come in while we're quickly talking about this, but I don't know, the answer might just be no. But is there any scope for, thinking out loud, but any <laughs> scope for using position on the bike or the setup of the bike um, in a rehabilitation setting? So say I've torn my hamstring and I'm starting to cycle because I'm not allowed to run yet. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any scope for playing around with the position and setup of the bike to either so, offload the hamstring or stress the hamstring more or less? So, so that's, that's where my, my passion comes in, where I can combine my physio um, background with my PhD cycling bike fitting background. And I work with a lot of um, cyclists who are in, are injured or are in pain or don't have the flexibility and, and changing their position so they don't fit into those normal ranges of that 25 to 35 
degree knee flexion angle, for example. But I've got them into a position where they are able to ride pain-free without putting more stress onto the hamstrings. Um, so things like ITB, hamstrings, the tip and um, pain, we do change the saddle to account for that. And it might not be a permanent change. It might be as they're going through that rehab process that, you know, initially because the hamstring is injured and it doesn't have that flexibility, so we drop the saddle ever so slightly. And then as they progress through their rehab and they're able to um, flex and extend through the hip more freely and more comfortably, we can start lifting that saddle a little bit more. Um, a lot of people with, I know the question was more hamstring related. So, so yes, definitely we do change the saddle height um, to accommodate that. But another example would be neck pain. Um, I don't put, you know, your oldest, your oldest cyclists who have a history of neck pain, either osteoarthritis or tension headaches, into a very aerodynamic position because I know that that's going to put strain onto, onto their neck. So it is working within um, each individual and setting the bike up for them. So they might not fit into those normative values, but for them, they are comfortable and, and that's what's important. And it might not be their forever position as they work through their rehab and as they get better, um, we can start changing it. It's an ongoing process. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think I think that's a perfect example of like evidence-based, person-specific kind of holistic practice. So yeah, really kind of everything we've talked about, then putting it all together and actually considering the individual to help them out, really. Um, yeah. so yeah, thanks ever so much, Wendy. I've I really that. it's been a brilliant talk. So thank you so much for joining and giving the lecture um thank you thank you for inviting me to come and speak <laughs> no worries and then yeah all that's left i think for me to do the bit i hate doing the horrible youtube a bit where i say if you want to find out more remember to subscribe and click on the bell thing next to it and then you should get notifications um when other lectures are happening so to stay up stay up to date um but yeah just Thanks again, Wendy, and yeah, thank you.